0: Hey, this is cj and welcome to episode 61 of the dangerous history podcast this is part four of the dangerous history podcast coverage of the american revolution covering roughly the years 1778 to 1781 and the first thing i want to talk about this time is the counter-revolution within the independence movement uh, gathering steam as the war rolled on it started to become ever clearer that There were many prominent leaders among the independence movement who were in fact quite conservative, almost reactionary over every other question just about than that of independence from Britain. Now, some of these guys are people who were way ahead of the curve on independence, so would have been considered radical in like 1775, early 1776, thereabouts, because they were way out front on the colony should just go outright independent or try to, but they wanted not that much change beyond that. These guys were elitist oligarchs who just wanted to have an American homegrown oligarchy at the top of the pyramid without another level of oligarchy, i.e. a British imperial one in London, superimposed on top of that. Now, like I said, some of these guys were way ahead and radical on the question of independence itself some of them however were kind of reluctantly dragged along into supporting independence and and resisted it up to the last minute but nonetheless um there's this group and they have a lot of traction murray rothbard in conceived in liberty describes these people as quote a cohesive faction who were radical on independence and yet highly conservative on domestic affairs End quote. And the two main sources geographically of these people who were pro-independence but in a way anti-revolution, in other words, opposed any real significant changes to how society functioned or or who had power or how rules were made and enforced, the two main sources of these geographically were New York and Pennsylvania. And this had been true all along, that those those places tended to produce the most, like, militantly moderate types but what started to happen as the war rolled on and this is perhaps more surprisingly given how many radicals came out of these places uh many of the leaders of Massachusetts and Virginia also either started to lean this way or perhaps revealed the cards they had always been carrying in their back pocket their their beliefs you know that had been there all along but hadn't been really expressed as Rothbard puts it, and by the way, R- Rothbard is a, is a great place to start on this question of independence versus revolution and, and understanding the difference between the two and sort of the Venn diagram notion of where they overlap and where they don't. But there are other, other good places to look as well. Um, some of the works of historian Gordon Wood, things like the radicalism of the American Revolution, uh, th- those sorts of things, um, Bernard Balin. Also, I believe, if I remember right, I don't have the book in front of me, Uh, Bernard Balin, I believe, has at least one book dealing with this question of sort of how revolutionary was what we call the American Revolution. And it's one of those questions I don't think there is a clear-cut answer. There's just sort of uh, different interpretations and and emphases depending on exactly how you're approaching it and how you define your terms. But uh, anyway, this is how Rothbard discusses this issue. He writes, quote, every revolution, after all, splits as it advances from one stage to the next, and former advocates fail to adhere to its inner logic and go over into opposition. But in this case, the split was particularly poignant for those who remained radical on domestic questions simply wanted to fulfill at home the grand rhetoric of liberty and democracy, which both wings had effectively employed in the fight for America against Great Britain, end quote. Now, Washington is an obvious example of this type, this uh, guy who's pro-independence, but very conservative, um, almost reactionary, oligarchical, elitist, and so on. Also, uh, for the most part, John Adams would be another example of this. And John Adams was one of these people that was way out front, seemingly radical um, in the early days of, you know, 1774, 75. But then as things dragged on, um, either he became more conservative, or he started to express his views more militantly. But either way, he becomes one of these anti-revolutionary, pro-independence types. And even though John Adams was at this time a personal friend of Thomas Jefferson, he actually disagreed with Jefferson on a lot of philosophical and uh, political science type questions. And he also disagreed vehemently and didn't even have the the friendly uh, personal relationship to moderate things with... Thomas Paine. In fact, John Adams was apparently one of the few pro-independence Americans who, when Common Sense came out, uh, did not like it. So in the spring of 1776, you know, not long after the Common Sense had taken the colonies by storm, John Adams was asked for his opinions on government and how to organize a government by the rebellious legislature, you know, the, the renegade Uh, rebel legislature of north carolina which was at the time forming its own state government something that many of the the um, rebel legislatures were doing at that time was crafting what would become their state constitution so figuring out you know how to organize different branches of government and and uh, allocating the powers of government and functions and whatever so um anyway north carolina contacts john adams known to be a a smart guy and very respected for his opinion. And Adams wrote an essay entitled Thoughts on Government. It's not very long. Um, Thoughts on Government shows Adams' opinion on how government ought to be organized and run, but it's also, as far as everyone can tell, uh, in part what he writes in there is motivated by his dislike of a lot of the democratic and libertarian radical ideas popular popularized by Thomas Paine in Common Sense and in some of his other writings as well. So in this essay, Adams lays all of the important, um, all of the importance, I should say, on the constitution of a country for its happiness. And this is an early example I believe, of constitutional idolatry, of this notion that that's all that matters is that the constitution of, of a society be, you know, properly crafted and organized in such a way as to prevent bad things from happening, to prevent corruption and and so on. And, and this is an idea that, you know, we can kind of forgive him for at the time, given this was, you know, two hundred and 40 years ago or what have you. But experiments since, both in the United States and around the world, I think have pretty much given lie to the notion that all you need is a a well-crafted, well-thought-out constitution and things just sort of take care of themselves. Um, It's clearly not enough. If you ever want to have a good but uh, tragically dark laugh, go look up the Constitution of the old Soviet Union. And, and read all like the individual rights that are laid out in that thing. And I mean, it sounds uh, in many ways not much different from like the American Bill of Rights. But then, of course, we all know in practice, the Soviet Union did not have uh, really any respect for individual rights and, and civil liberties. So Adams says the, the all important factor is having a good constitution. That's that's the key to everything. And not only is a constitution the key to a country being governed well it also is the key for a country being happy because adam says that the government is responsible for making people happy this is a very interesting uh, notion he does briefly mention the concept of um, happiness of the individual being key but then he gives a very utilitarian a collectivist-sounding rationale for government as the way by which individual happiness can be inculcated in a people. So let me just read you a few a few bits on um, Thoughts on Government by John Adams, and I'll try to remember to link to it in the show notes, and if for some reason I forget, you can just Google it, Thoughts on Government by John Adams, and it's only a few pages long. It's available as a PDF uh, from multiple websites. So in the first paragraph, Adams says this, the divine science of politics is the science of social happiness, and the blessings of society depend entirely on the constitutions of government. So. First off, he calls politics a divine science and then says it's the science of social happiness and then says that the blessings of society depend entirely on the constitutions of government. I mean, that is is a very, very statist, almost authoritarian type of a thing. I'm not saying John Adams would endorse all the uh, actions and procedures of a modern authoritarian state, but I think you can definitely see how his mindset, if you keep carrying it to its logical conclusions, can ultimately end end you uh, up there. I mean, can you really imagine that uh, the the leader of a place like North Korea would disagree with the statement that, Um, politics is the science of social happiness and the blessings of society depend on the state. Again, I, I really don't think John Adams would endorse, you know, a modern communist state or anything like that. But you can see how ideas, even not intended to go a certain way, sometimes if you just keep pulling the thread and following them to their logical conclusions can lead you to dark places. That's why it's always important to reason many steps uh, both forward and backward and, and check your premises and check where do the ideas lead because a lot of utilitarian type ideas can sound very plausible and seductive but when you really follow them to their logical conclusions they they can lead you to very dark places now um, a few paragraphs down Adams is talking about in his opinion what is the purpose of government and it's here that he spells it out uh, the purpose of government he says quote the happiness of society is the end of government, as all divines and moral philosophers will agree that the happiness of the individual is the end of man, end quote. And that's the statement that the happiness of the individual is the end of man. Um, I think he's right that like that's very commonly accepted. Uh, you can find variations of this uh, in Aristotle and in many other Western philosophers since then. And I don't particularly have a problem with the notion that individual happiness should be the goal of an individual because as I I think it was Aristotle or maybe somebody writing about Aristotle, I forget exactly, once put it that happiness is the only thing that we pursue that's an end in itself rather than a means to another end, right? You know, we pursue money to buy stuff or because we like money. Uh, We pursue sex because it gives us pleasure, all these different things. But happiness itself is not a means to any other end. Happiness is the end of most human action, at at least the intended end, the intended goal. Now, having said that uh, the happiness of the individual is the end of man, Adams then says, quote, from this principle, it will follow. That the form of government, which communicates ease, comfort, security, or in one word, happiness to the greatest number of persons and in the greatest degree is the best, end quote. And here you have the utilitarian argument that government should be looking to promote the greatest happiness for the greatest number. And um, of course, this sounds very seductive if you don't dig deeper and reason it through to its conclusions, but, you know, there, there are examples like um, the organ transplant dilemma where if you have, let's say in a hospital, you have five patients, one of whom is um, not particularly close to dying, four of whom are very sick and need organ transplants to live. And the four who are sick and need organ transplants all need different organs. Right. And it just so happens that the, the guy who's in the hospital who's not that sick and is, is not going to die, um, happens to have healthy organs of, of what's needed by the four really sick people. And, uh, you know, they're let's assume they're blood type compatible and all that stuff for the sake of argument. Well, then this utilitarian notion of the greatest good for the greatest number or the greatest happiness for the greatest number would say uh, this is a simple math equation. It's it's very simple. What you do is you uh, kill the patient that's not really sick, uh, not really that sick And you confiscate his organs and you distribute them to the four patients who are very sick. Because then what you've done is uh, one person died, but four lived. And uh, that's more good for more people. And of course, we would assume that the four who live are happy about that. So when you reduce ethical and political questions To bear utilitarianism, you reduce it to a math problem and you carry it to its conclusions. And I would bet that very few of you who are listening to me would say, oh, yeah, definitely the right thing to do in that hypothetical scenario is kill the one guy, take his organs, divvy him up amongst the four people who need organs. And um, yeah, clearly that's the morally right thing to do. Even those of you who would normally endorse utilitarian sounding notions would say, whoa, and and recoil from that instinctively. And what that does is that reveals to me that deep down human beings, uh, unless you're a flat out uh, sociopath or psychopath or something, most human beings don't really believe utilitarian ethics when it comes to uh, significant situations but they buy the plausibility of them on, on a shallow surface level, and this allows politicians to then exploit you and get you to support things you might not otherwise support because of these utilitarian justifications. Later on in the essay, uh, John Adams argues that virtue leads to happiness, which, again, I wouldn't really argue with. Um, I think that's fine. Again, psychopaths and sociopaths accepted. But then Adams says that government should be founded upon and inculcate virtue. And this, to me, the notion of founding a government upon virtue is um, insane. It, it's a logical contradiction in terms. And then the notion of government inculcating virtue uh, is even more ridiculous because if you were to poll a huge number of people and ask them to rank various occupational groups uh, from the standpoint of virtuous versus non-virtuous, I have no idea what they would put at or near the top as far as virtuous goes, but I'd be willing to bet a fortune that uh, people would overwhelmingly put politicians at or at the very bottom of the virtue scale. And if it wasn't politicians at the very bottom, it would probably be lawyers. And considering how many politicians uh, in the 18th century to today have been lawyers, that's not exactly a ringing endorsement either. So the notion that government is founded upon virtue uh, is, is about as silly to me as the notion that a um, society of baby seal eaters is founded upon the principles of vegetarianism. It's, it's just absurd. Uh, I won't get too much more uh, sidetracked into this essay. I, I just find it's interesting. It's little known um, and it reveals a lot about John Adams and sort of his type. And I'll, ju- I'll just say that um, overall, when you go through the details of this essay, Adams reveals he favors a very elitist type of republic in which um, the the average people really have very limited influence he had this notion which later gets uh used in the massachusetts constitution and also later in the united states constitution that it was very important to um only have half of the legislature be really democratically elected and that the other half or the other house of the legislature should be um appointed by somebody rather than elected by the people and in addition, he favors in this document, again, things that find their way into the Massachusetts and U.S. Constitution, a very powerful independent executive vested in one man and also um, a very powerful independent judiciary in which the judges serve for life. So some of the most elitist parts of the, the system of, of, the, of the later U.S. Constitution Spring from, I'm sure he wasn't the only guy or the first guy to come up with these ideas, but he's one of the most influential guys putting these ideas out there, uh, John Adams. And again, this is in staunch opposition both to the ideas of Thomas Paine and to the ideas of Adams's then friend, Thomas Jefferson. John Adams seems to have exercised a fairly significant influence over his cousin Samuel Adams during the war years enough to tone down Samuel's instinctive radicalism a lot of the time, although it did still creep out on occasion. But um, Samuel Adams continued on this path in many ways. For example, in years after the war, Samuel Adams became quite reactionary within Massachusetts politics, and he was one of the loudest voices in Massachusetts cheering on the suppression of what's known as Shays' Rebellion, which happened a few years after the Revolutionary War ended. And Adams was uh, Samuel Adams here, who normally you would expect, hey, founder of the Sons of Liberty, definitely a radical all for the people, you know, fighting for their rights and whatever. But when it came to Shays Rebellion, Samuel Adams was advocating um, even more extreme force than was actually used. He, he wanted like, you know, heads on a platter type thing. So um, and I, I think John was a big influence on steering him more and more in that direction. By the way, John Adams was one of the main authors of the Massachusetts State Constitution of 1780, which is technically still in effect today, making it the oldest still functioning constitution in the world as far as I know, Uh, though to be fair it has been amended well over 100 times, so it's not like it's exactly the same document really uh, for practical purposes as it was in 1780. Now, this Massachusetts Constitution of 1780 was explicitly designed to be very elitist and conservative and oligarchical, and itself was one of the main reasons behind Shays' Rebellion after the War of Independence. And by the way, when I finish my mini series on the American Revolution, which I'm probably going to do at least two more episodes after this one. I'm also considering doing an episode, after all that, on what what I think of as, and I'll probably call the episode something like, Revolutionary Aftershocks. And I'm thinking I'll I'll look at um, Shays' Rebellion and also the Whiskey Rebellion. So, uh, stay tuned for that. But basically, what this Constitution of 1780 did was it created a state government in Massachusetts that was almost completely dominated by the Boston and sort of greater Eastern Massachusetts oligarchs and which was blatantly rigged, not just against the poor, but even against middle-class people. And even, even rigged against people who were fairly affluent, but who lived out on the Western more frontier areas of Massachusetts and Shays rebellion is going to spring out of this resentment. A lot of people out West, some of them poor, some of them really not poor get really fed up With the Massachusetts state government screwing them over, privileging a a small group of big business um, eastern, primarily Boston area interest groups, and um, eventually some of these these disgruntled Western Massachusetts people, many of whom were combat veterans of the Revolutionary War. Uh, rise up in what they see as like a continuation of the american revolution the the idea of our rights are not being respected and protected by our government therefore we've got to take drastic measures to rectify the situation anyway don't want to get into that too much more because like i said i'm as of right now planning on on doing an episode uh, combo on that and the whiskey rebellion but just wanted to mention that now Uh, sort of a teaser right but i just want to share with you um before we leave this topic a quote from rothbard again volume four of conceived in liberty rothbard writes quote the basic issue in internal affairs was simply would the american governments remain as they had emerged at the outset of the revolution spontaneous libertarian democratic and responsive to the checks of the people or would they revert to something very oligarchic very like oligarchic british rule strong government, with an executive and upper legislative house far removed from the people and only partially checked by them. Would oligarchic power be resumed by a new set of Tory lords in another guise? This is what the internal struggle in the years after Lexington and Concord was basically about. And this is why the separation of home rule from rule at home can be highly artificial, for in a profound sense, Those who remained radical on the domestic front were carrying to completion the meaning of the struggle against Britain. After all, their objection was not only to a certain set of Tory and monarchical rulers, their objection was also directed to governmental power itself, to executive oligarchy, to taxes and restrictions, and to big government. They, meaning the radical people, did not propose to overthrow to overthrow one set of masters in order to raise up another end quote switching gears i want to talk about something called the conway cabal and this is around the time that the uh main force of the northern continental army under george washington is wintering at valley ford so we're talking Late 1777, early 1778. Uh, by the way, this is not only are, are thousands of men dying of disease and hunger at Valley Forge, this is also after some pretty serious American losses near the end of 1777 at battles like Brandywine and Germantown. So around this time when things are looking pretty bleak, a group of influential American leaders, both in the military and in Congress, began to question George Washington's leadership. And I think they had good reason to at that time. He had just suffered some significant losses and now the army is, you know, suffering and dying in even larger numbers just from lack of supply. that to be fair. You could blame some of that on Congress. But, you know, the, the point is to somebody just looking at it objectively, who's not already been inculcated by Washington mythology the way us moderns usually are, you would look at it and go, why the hell is this guy still in charge? He Is has like an 85 percent battlefield loss record. And it looks like he's, you know, going to cause the entire army to get wiped out soon. Now, the people who started to question Washington's leadership of the Continental Army tended also to be people who were more on the radical side politically. And they included people like Benjamin Rush, Samuel Adams, James Lovell, Richard Henry Lee, and uh, perhaps surprisingly, even the conservative John Adams, who had been one of Washington's biggest proponents for the post of Commander-in-Chief in in the Second Continental Congress, even John Adams was part of this group for a while that was seriously questioning Washington's command. Now, these people who were starting to discuss, sometimes verbally, sometimes via letter, uh, whether Washington should continue as Commander-in-Chief, typically favored Horatio Gates' the commander of the victory at Saratoga, as a replacement. But um, what happens is some of this, you know, political murmuring about maybe Washington ought to be replaced uh, eventually became known to George Washington. It becomes known as the Conway Cabal because it started over letters between a general named Thomas Conway, who was an Irish-born general of the French army, who'd been commissioned into the Continental Army. Uh, Letters from him to Horatio Gates. And to be fair, most of the criticisms of Washington in these letters were fairly mild, but Washington got uh, wind of it. Now, Gates himself, as far as anyone knows, never really attacked Washington's leadership or personally was trying to, you know, get Washington fired and, and himself as his replacement. But what happens is, When Washington finds out that that, uh, Conway and some other people were contacting Gates and expressing criticism of Washington, and Washington finds out about this like third hand, he doesn't actually even read the letters himself, he's kind of told what supposedly is in the letters, Um, Washington really went ballistic. He gets this third hand account of what is supposedly in the letters. And from what we can tell, it seems that his what he was told was in the letters was far more extreme than what was actually in the letters. But when he hears about this, he writes letters to General Thomas Conway, uh, very, very angry and aggressive at him. And Conway responded that, uh, number one, the specific things that Washington was saying that he, Conway, had said were things he hadn't actually said in the letter. But Conway did acknowledge that, yes, I have criticized your leadership and uh, Conway furthermore defended his right to do so, which is something that in the European armies of the time, there was not much allowed for, um, you know, people of low rank to criticize or question people of high rank. But in most European armies at the time, it was considered socially acceptable for a general to question the capability of another general in his own army. And so Conway, as a as a career European general, was surprised that Washington would get so angry and take it so personally. And especially, you know, considering Washington was a huge admirer of European armies and was doing his best to mold the American army into a European style army. uh, It is somewhat surprising, but I think it shows you a side of George Washington's personality. That most people are completely unaware of Uh, a very angry, vindictive side that takes everything personal and is, um, you know, hugely overreactive to criticism and that kind of thing. Now, Washington, and perhaps even more so a lot of his close uh, supporters, both in the army and in Congress, They concocted this entire conspiracy theory that, like, there was a really formal, organized conspiracy amongst some people in the Army and in Congress to, like, have a coup d'etat against Washington as general, and this needed to be snuffed out, and they portrayed it as, like, being borderline treasonous in some cases, but... It was it was never really like that. No historian who's dug into this, even historians who are very pro Washington, like Don Hagenbotham, have looked into this and said, "Nah, there wasn't really any plot or conspiracy. It was just a few people who were kind of talking to each other, saying, hey, is it just me or is Washington like kind of sucking right now? And no one in Congress, even the people who had in in letters and conversations questioned Washington, Uh, no one in Congress ever made a a formal uh, motion or anything like that to try and remove Washington from leadership. But nonetheless, Washington did react in a very vengeful and vindictive manner against most of the people that he had uh, heard were criticizing him, and he and his close supporters acted as if there really was a serious, dangerous conspiracy against George Washington. And so uh, Thomas Conway, was soon forced out of the Continental Army. And Benjamin Rush, a doctor and uh, leader from Pennsylvania, who was actually one of the signers of the Declaration of Independence and who had become the Surgeon General of the Continental Army, uh, Benjamin Rush was also soon forced out of the Army. And even Horatio Gates, who was not really an active participant in any potential plotting on this, Gates was just the guy who other people were writing to saying, hey, uh, we kind of are fed up with Washington and we think you might be better as commander. Um, Is it, you know, Gates's fault that other people are thinking and saying that he might be better than Washington? But even Benjamin Gates felt some of Washington's wrath. They had an angry exchange of letters and uh, Gates was eventually under pressure from Washington's crowd. Gates was soon essentially sidelined for the rest of the war by being transferred to a quiet post in the middle of nowhere where nothing was going on. So the hero of Saratoga gets just kind of like shunted off to the sidelines because some people thought he might be a better commander than Washington. Again, even historian Don Higginbotham in his book, The War of American Independence, and Higginbotham is hugely pro-Washington most of the time, says of this, quote, It was anything but Washington's finest hour, end quote. And Higginbotham says that the notion of a real conspiracy or a real cabal was almost entirely a myth on the part of Washington and his supporters, to which they grossly overreacted. And of course, if a pro-Washington historian like Don Higginbotham is even willing to admit that this was kind of a sorry uh, episode in Washington's career, you can imagine what an anti-Washington guy like Murray Rothbard has to say about it. And Rothbard is brutal, and any of you who who are familiar with the writings of Murray Rothbard know he's a very skillful writer, and he's very good at uh, wittily and artfully uh, attacking people, let's say, that he doesn't like. Now, speaking of Washington, I want to talk a little bit more about him, and also specifically Charles Lee, one of his major generals, a very controversial figure who... Probably should have been commander in chief of the Continental Army if it was based solely on um, credentials and experience and so on. But who didn't get it for political reasons? Washington, again, was one of these guys who was an early radical purely on the question of independence. But on virtually every other question, he was a rock ribbed conservative. uh, Perhaps you could even argue reactionary who wanted to avoid change other than cutting the uh, parliament and king off from the top of American society. He just wanted the homegrown American elite, of which he was a part, to be at the top of things in America, rather than having a British elite still above them. And he's a Virginia aristocrat and oligarch, and Virginia itself was the most aristocratic and oligarchical of the colonies, other than perhaps New York. Washington was a guy who had achieved most of his accomplishments in life through family connections and or politics. So naturally he got the job of commander in chief of the Continental Army largely for the same reasons. And Washington as we've said before was a huge admirer of the British army and he sought as much as humanly possible To impose the ways of the British Army, those European methods of war and, and discipline and organization onto the American Continental Army, which, of course, those procedures and ways of fighting and ways of disciplining and organizing are at complete odds with all of the supposed Enlightenment ideals of the revolution as espoused in places like Common Sense and the Declaration of Independence. But, you know, to a guy like George Washington... A lot of those ideas were dangerous and to be avoided, if possible. By the way, interestingly, back during the days of the Seven Years' War, or French and Indian War, Washington had, at the time he was a lieutenant colonel, I think then during the war he might have gotten promoted to colonel, if I remember right, of the Virginia militia, but he was not actually commissioned in the regular British Army, and he had vigorously pursued a commission. In the british army he had tried to pull all the political strings he could to get it but he did not succeed in getting commissioned into the british army he remained a virginia militia officer primarily because of his colonial origins the british army officer corps was very aristocratic and uh, it was extremely rare if it ever happened at all i can't remember for an american an american you know a, a british subject born in the colonies as they would have put it at the time to get a high commission in the British military. And the fact that Washington was snubbed when he was desperately trying to get into the British Army back in, I guess it was the early 1760s, raises to me an interesting question, which is, if Washington had actually succeeded in getting a British Army commission in the 1760s, would he still have been part of the colonial independence movement in the 1770s? Or would he, had he gotten this British Army Commission, would he have just been a good, loyal British soldier and actually helped to crush the rebellion? Interesting question. How much of Washington's motivation to be part of the pro-independence crowd was sour grapes and a grudge for the British elite not letting him into their army's officer class interesting question to ponder it's always interesting trying to figure out someone's motivations and until we have mind reading machines you can never know for sure because even if somebody writes it down in their diary they still could be either intentionally lying because they know their diary will be read by future historians or they could be uh, you know kind of self-deceiving right writing down things about their motivations that they consciously believe but that aren't really what's motivating them So, but to me, it's an interesting question to ponder, right? Would Washington have been pro-independence had the British Army given him a commission back during the Seven Years' War? Now, a contrast in almost every way to George Washington was Charles Lee. Washington was uh, tall and regal looking and was always impeccably dressed and groomed and everything like that. Charles Lee, by contrast, kind of average looking. uh, Some accounts even say kind of ugly, uh, had a reputation as being somewhat of a sloppy dresser, that sort of thing. One of these guys who probably was a, was of a genius IQ, but um, as a result, you know, didn't really care much about if his uniform was perfectly straight or not. Uh, there have been many other famous generals since who have been very successful, who have that reputation as well of being kind of a, a frumpy dresser. And uh, there's geniuses all over the place who fit that description, right? Steve Jobs, people like that. So the problem, though, is unlike in the case of, say, Steve Jobs, the free market is going to make him successful if he makes products that the people, the consumers want to buy. But in the case of you're picking a general for an army, well, that's not a free market decision. It's a political decision based on the whims of a handful of elite politicians. So the best man for the job might not always get the job. And looks and appearance, unfortunately, matters, and it matters more in questions of politics than almost anywhere else I can think of. So don't discount that as a factor in Washington just walking right into the job as commander in chief. But to that, we could also add the importance of the fact that he was a member of the homegrown Virginia elite. He was born in Virginia to a family that had been in Virginia for many generations. So he had a lot more political pull from many, many directions than Charles Lee who was a newcomer to America. I mean, he had been in the colonies for a while during the Seven Years' War as a British officer, but he had been born in England and had lived most of his life in England or elsewhere in Europe, and only came to America uh, shortly before the War of Independence really started. But like I've mentioned before in a previous episode, Charles Lee had a much more impressive service record, both in the British Army and um, as sort of a mercenary or something like that for uh, some of the other armies in, in Europe, during which he had witnessed the devastating effect of what we today call guerrilla warfare. So, in contrast to Washington, not just in terms of appearance, but background, uh, also Charles Lee, unlike Washington, was a political radical. He was much more of like the Thomas Paine school of, um, you know, enlightenment thought influenced, huge emphasis on individual rights, a huge um, inherent dislike of arbitrary authority and power. And so Lee saw his political radical ideals, which he thought were the core ideals of the revolutionary movement and the idea of guerrilla style fighting as being clearly, explicitly and logically linked that a war for freedom should be fought as a people's guerrilla war and vice versa. A people's guerrilla war is more likely to result. Not that, it, not that it would necessarily be guaranteed to result in, but it's more likely to result in gains for freedom, um, at least he, he thought so, than a war fought for independence with a big conventional army, and a big conventional army, a big standing army, conducting conventional European operations is going to require bigger government, more taxes, etc., and it's going to require some form of conscription or another, and it's going to inculcate very, um, very non-democratic and non-freedom-oriented uh, mindsets and attitudes in the people who serve in that big conventional army. Also, Lee had a reputation as a hothead, uh, that sort of thing, and, and to be fair, I think Washington was at least as much of a hothead, if not more than Lee, but that Washington was better most of the time at masking his uh, rage and temper in public. Whereas Lee, and you could maybe say in his favor, Lee was more honest or whatever, uh, Lee was willing to express his anger about things in in an open way. Historian John Shy, in an essay about Charles Lee in the book, A People Numerous and Armed, writes this, quote, certainly he meaning charles lee needed some sort of psychiatric help had such th- such a thing been available in 18th century america end quote. and shy says that lee should be considered an example of what modern analysts call quote, the true believer the fanatic whose very strength lies in his lack of balance judgment and self-restraint end quote. nonetheless though there's obviously some criticism in those statements Shai also characterizes Lee as intellectually brilliant and is a man who always questioned conventions and authority, which of course explains why somebody like Murray Rothbard uh, really likes Charles Lee. And Lee was not only a more experienced soldier than Washington at the start of the war, he was also much more educated both in military tactics and strategy and in the Enlightenment philosophies of liberty which certainly we would look at today and say uh, those those ideas typically have some flaws, but they were certainly moving in a better direction from the standpoint of liberty than the ideas of English Tories. Or even the ideas of someone like John Adams, or to use the term ideas, perhaps a bit generously, the ideas of George Washington. Another quote from historian John Shy quote, Nearly every step taken by Lee as a general in the American army had shown a consciousness of the political aspects of the war. He was obsessed with the idea of maintaining the morale of his men and creating the proper attitude among the civilian population. He even capitalized upon his own eccentric behavior in order to gain these ends. Whether recommending that a pro-American Jesuit be sent to the army in Canada, or suggesting that unarmed Virginians be trained in the use of spears, Lee constantly emphasized the psychological aspects of warfare. Washington, on the other hand, was far more in tune with the mid-18th century concept of warfare, an era in which war and society were carefully separated, and the soldier fought primarily because he was more afraid to disobey than to die. Washington and Lee looked at the same troops, but where the Virginia planter saw only surliness and disobedience, the British radical saw alertness and zeal. End quote. Now, we've previously mentioned some of Lee's early successes in the war as basically a troubleshooter who would be sent to wherever there was a problem and would almost every time uh, do a good job fixing it. Uh, For example, he successfully defended Charleston from British attacks early in the war, and then he also helped Washington get his army the hell out of New York City after suffering many defeats in that area from the British Army. However, Lee was constantly butting heads with Washington over tactics and strategy, and Lee ended up being the odd man out most of the time in Washington's command, as most of Washington's subordinate generals and his aides tended to be yes-men who worshipped him, people like um, John Lawrence, Alexander Hamilton, and to some degree even Nathaniel Green. Although, uh, to be fair to Green, while he tended to personally, um, you know, praise Washington almost sycophantically, he also was willing on occasion to part ways with Washington on questions of strategy and tactics. But still, most of the time when Washington would have these councils of war with his uh, aides and his generals, Lee most of the time is the odd man out, the one guy saying that they ought to do something different than what everyone else is saying they ought to do. And Washington virtually never listens to him. And it's amazing how often Lee is vindicated By what actually happens on the battlefield. Some some uh, tactic that he said was not a good idea given the circumstances. Washington does it anyway. Um, Most of the other generals back Washington and then it ends up being a disaster. That kind of thing. Many examples of this. So, for example, in November 1776, there was a fort in northern Manhattan called Fort Washington, American Fort, that the British were going to attack. And Lee looked at the situation and at the numbers on both sides and that kind of thing. And he argued in a council of, of the generals that it could not be successfully defended against the British troops who were coming to attack it. And Washington in this instance sided with Nathaniel Green instead and Green had said that the fort absolutely could be defended, and the result was a disaster. The fort was taken by the British, and over 2,000 Americans were taken prisoner. It was, I believe, one of the largest uh, surrenders in the entire war of Americans uh, to the British, and Lee had argued to just leave the fort because it wasn't defensible given the circumstances, and he's vindicated that, yeah, the, the fort is successfully taken by the British, and Lee wasn't happy, though, to have been vindicated. He wanted to, you know, succeed in the war. So when Lee heard what happened regarding Fort Washington, he went absolutely ballistic and he supposedly said something along the lines of had the fort been called Fort Lee, I'm sure we would have evacuated it a long time ago. Obviously jabbing at Washington with the implication that one of the reasons Washington decided to try to hold that fort was that it was called Fort Washington. Now, what happened to Lee as the war round on? Well, in December of 1776, he was taken prisoner by the British, and at first it seemed that he might be hanged for treason or something like that because he was a former British officer now taking up arms against the British state. But he ended up being held captive for about 16 months and was exchanged by the British for some British prisoners in early 1778. Now, by the way, uh, regarding the treatment of POWs in this war, it's kind of interesting. Uh, I may or may not mention more on it later, but uh, at first, when the war started, the British government was saying that it was not going to accord captured rebels, the customary rights of POWs that were typically granted between European powers at war at that time. But what happened was, as the Americans started to take significant numbers of British captives The British decided they were going to abide by uh, the typical rules of POWs to be nice, basically so that Americans would not turn vindictive or abusive to their British prisoners. While in captivity, Lee said and did some things that people, uh, historians still wonder about and argue about to this day. He supposedly endorsed a negotiated peace settlement between Britain and the Americans, Um, seemingly out of a notion that uh, the war should be ended to avoid more mass bloodshed. Maybe he was disillusioned by the body count that was coming out of George Washington's desire to pursue conventional European tactics against the British Army. But that that's just speculative, I admit He even advocated something along the lines of what would later get known as dominion status within the British Empire, which is the status you find a place like, say, Canada having uh, by the early to mid 20th century, where they still acknowledge the monarch of Britain as their head of state, but they have their own independent parliament. They have what's what's known as home rule. Uh, By the way, this is what Ireland got in the 1920s under the leadership of Michael Collins, and it was only gradually over many decades. over several decades, that Ireland went from being a dominion, technically still kind of part of the British Empire, but ruling itself internally, to eventually becoming a full-fledged republic. And so Lee was basically advocating what Michael Collins got for Ireland in the early 1920s. He even apparently gave some military advice to British General Howe, and historians still argue why Lee said and did these things. You know, did he have some sort of genuine change of heart on some of these issues? Was he just trying to save his own neck in captivity? Was he worried they still might execute him? Was he deliberately, in the case of giving how advice, was he deliberately giving how bad advice on on what to do? I don't know. I don't know. And historians, like I said, still argue over exactly what Lee was doing and why he was doing it during this time while he was in captivity. So Lee was, in some ways at the very least, moderating on the question of full independence. However, when he got out of captivity, he advocated uh, even more vociferously a radical change in the conduct of the war on the part of America. So even while he's on the one hand saying, well, maybe we don't need full independence, just internal self-rule, he's also saying, hey, we need to really radicalize how we're fighting this war in the first place. So he writes up a document and uh, proposes a whole bunch of changes to things. John Shy talks about it as follows, quote, He, meaning Lee, proposed a reformation of army organization and tactics and analyzed their strategic choices for the campaign of 1778. His discussion of tactics and organization showed that his ideas had not changed. He stressed the value of simplicity and the need for American warfare to fit the American genius. And now Shai is quoting Charles Lee. If the Americans are servilely kept to the European plan, he wrote, they will make an awkward figure, be laughed at as a bad army by their enemy, and defeated in every reconteur which depends on maneuvers. End quote from Charles Lee, continuing with the words of John Shy, The exact meaning of these ideas became clearer when he discussed strategy. He believed that it was madness to think of fighting British regulars on their own terms. To do so would be to forsake the natural advantages of the American position. The idea that a decision action in fair ground may be risked in, is talking nonsense. And that's uh, some of Lee's words he's using there. Instead, words of Charles Lee, a plan of defense, harassing and impeding can alone succeed. Back to Shy, if necessary, the Americans could base their operations on the rough country west of the Susquehanna, where British regulars would not dare penetrate. In short, Lee had driven his earlier thinking toward its logical conclusions and was proposing a war waged along guerrilla lines. Nothing could have been further from Washington's mind. Throughout the winter and spring at Valley Forge, he and Steuben, more on him in a moment, had planned and trained the army according to the European plan. Steuben has often been quoted on the difference between uh, Europeans and Americans as soldiers, but if he learned to explain to Americans why they were being trained, it was only to shape them better to the conventional European form of tactics. It is likely, in fact, that Lee's plan was aimed directly at Steuben's program, for Lee had hardly arrived in the American camp when he succeeded in having Steuben's powers as Inspector General curtailed. End quote from John Shai. However, uh, Lee came nowhere near to having his uh, preferences for strategy and tactics implemented on a wide scale, at least while he remained in the army. Although a lot of his ideas were implemented one way or another in the latter phases of the war uh, down south, which I'm going to be covering in the second half of this episode. Like I said, in spring of 1778, Lee was exchanged and he did return to command in the Continental Army, though his enthusiasm seems to have been somewhat diminished. And um, despite being one of the earliest advocates of outright independence, he now was somewhat reluctant to take the loyalty oath that was starting to be required of officers in the Continental Army, uh, even though earlier he had been a proponent of the loyalty oath. So it's kind of, kind of confusing, kind of interesting. You got to wonder what's going through his head during this time. Now, Charles Lee really started to fall into disdain because of his court-martial for insubordination at the Battle of Monmouth, sometimes called Monmouth Courthouse, in 1778, which also happened to be the last really big conventional battle in the North. What happened was, during the course of the battle, Washington ordered Lee, whose men were significantly outnumbered at this one area of, of where the battle was taking place, to carry out an attack, though the orders were somewhat vague, something, I forget the exact wording, unfortunately I forgot to throw it in my notes, but it was something along the lines of like attack if possible, which seems to be giving you know, Lee some discretion. Now, because of terrain and distance, Washington actually didn't have accurate info on the British troops. He was actually some distance away from where Lee's troops were. And there's there were, like, ravines in the area or something like that, and it was tough for anybody to really know what was going on. Lee didn't really know how many British there were and where exactly they were until his troops were beginning to uh, engage. And apparently what happened was that the Marquis de Lafayette, the famous French nobleman who came over to uh, help with the war and w- became a big friend of Washington and was one of his many sycophants, Uh, Lafayette, who was commanding a portion of Lee's forces in this battle, uh, for whatever reason decided to retreat. And that action, plus the fact that he was starting to get accurate information on the British numbers and defenses, caused Charles Lee to order the rest of his forces to pull back as well. Later, when Washington came across Lee, um he and, and found out what had happened, Washington apparently went ballistic. Uh, he viciously berated him and uh, supposedly was cursing up a blue streak of invective at Lee. Really just just acting. You know, Washington has this great reputation for being so classy and such a gentleman and even people who acknowledge he actually wasn't the best uh, military commander around we'll still say well but what really counted see, was his character he had so much dignity and blah 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 well if you actually bother to dig into the details of this guy you find that all the way back from his beginning uh, during the seven years war right on through the revolution and into his presidency he actually was was a very very vindictive guy very often and um, was often you know bitter in his attacks on people who had even slightly annoyed him um, and often took everything personally and 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 so on so there's washington viciously attacking charles lee for doing what most people who've really studied this battle uh, indicate was probably a prudent thing to do to not carry out an attack against uh, a contingent of british forces that significantly outnumbered his and was in a strong defensive position even Don Higginbotham, who is a very pro-Washington historian, uh, seems to admit that Lee was right in this particular instance. And In his book, The War of American Independence, Higginbotham writes, quote, Lee, dubious from the beginning about the undertaking, went at the enemy, both Lee and Washington being unaware of the terrain of the enemy or of the enemy's strength. Lee, having traversed three ravines in his line of march, was in danger of being pinned against any of them before he could make his escape, or before Washington, several miles away, could make his way over the route to rescue Lee's vanguard. Largely because of the terrain, hampering communications and making military formations difficult, Lee's troops, after initial probes, fell back. Under the circumstances, Lee did well enough, a good deal of confusion was inevitable, Managing to withdraw to the westernmost ravine, Lee, during the last phase of the retrograde movement, encountered Washington, who sharply criticized his subordinate. The battle overall ended up being a very bloody draw. Now, Lee was very offended at how Washington treated him in this instance, and he wrote angry letters to Washington. And eventually when he he wouldn't stop his uh, anger and he's basically not quite demanding a duel, but kind of talking that way, like, you know, I want a a, an apology or something like that. And and eventually Lee himself actually asked for a court martial because he believed that a court martial would provide an unbiased information, unbiased investigation and would vindicate his actions against the the accusations and criticisms of Washington. But of course, what Lee didn't understand is that while George Washington may have sucked as a battlefield commander most of the time, the man was very skillful at PR and at politics and uh, at either through um, through positive propaganda and all the mythology about him or through intimidation where necessary. Washington was damn good at getting politicians to back him up. And you can find him doing this in uh, the Virginia House of Burgesses all the heck the way back in the Seven Years War when he was doing a crappy job and then um, getting politicians to basically save his bacon politically. Now, uh, the the court-martial of Charles Lee illustrates the split I was talking about before between the more radical and revolutionary leaders versus the more conservative reactionary leaders. And so the more radical types like Samuel Adams, James Lovell, Richard Henry Lee, Benjamin Rush, the same guys who had been criticizing Washington uh, and had been accused of being part of some cabal, as I mentioned before, uh, were defending Lee. And there were even a few high-ranking officers in the Army, such as Horatio Gates, maybe not surprisingly, but also Henry Knox, maybe more surprising, because he was a guy who had a better relationship with Washington. Now, aside from Washington himself, Lee's main opponents, the people taking Washington's side in this dispute, were Lafayette, uh, Stuyben, John Lawrence, who was a colonel from South Carolina and one of um, Washington's aides, and especially Alexander Hamilton. In fact, Charles Lee blamed much of uh, of the whole thing on Hamilton, that, that Hamilton was in some ways egging Washington on and making things even worse. Um, Hamilton also, by the way, another aide to George Washington. Most of the people surrounding George Washington, his aides and the majority of his uh, subordinate generals were very sycophantic most of the time, constantly kissing his ass and praising him being yes men and so on. Um, somewhat interestingly, a few people who didn't typically like Lee and who typically tended to praise Washington actually said at the very least that Lee was treated unfairly. An example of this is Nathaniel Green who was mostly very, very um, pro-Washington. But in this instance, he said, eh, Lee really got, really got mistreated in the whole thing. Um, also kind of funny, British General Clinton, Henry Clinton actually said, uh, and, and he was the general whose forces were opposing Lee in the Battle of Monmouth. General Clinton actually said that Lee's retreat had probably saved his army from being annihilated or captured en masse at Monmouth. But, you know, politically, as already indicated by the by the whole Conway Cabal fiasco, Washington had built up so many supporters in the Congress, either through, um, you know, positive reasons, people who believed the the hype about Washington that was already being concocted. And uh, it was admitted by some people later, some some revolutionary leaders, you know, guys from the Continental Congress and so on some of them admitted later years later after washington had died that um the 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 whole persona of washington the whole mythology of washington was largely invented during the revolutionary war in order to basically keep morale up and and keep you know the majority of people unified behind the independence effort and so on that that's one of the reasons why they were reluctant to replace washington as commander in chief even when he was like losing all the time was you know they were concerned about pr they were concerned about morale so as a result of this there was no way the court-martial was going to side with lee no matter what the facts said so lee was convicted at his court-martial he lost the the trial and higginbotham writes quote Convicted of disobeying orders by not attacking, making an unnecessary retreat, and showing disrespect to the commander-in-chief, Lee may well have fallen because he crossed swords with Washington. Lee's conviction resulted in a one-year suspension from the army, a humiliation Lee disdainfully rejected, prompting Congress to remove him from the service, end quote. Now, Lee continued to criticize Washington uh, in, in letters and sometimes publicly. And this was not a politically correct thing to do because by the latter part of the war, Washington had really become a sacred cow. And this hurt Lee's popularity significantly in, at the time and in the eyes of most typical historians who were Washington worshipers ever since. In fact, the hatred of of Lee for badmouthing Washington got so bad that in 1779, Colonel John Lawrence, a, a South Carolinian who was an aide to Washington, even challenged Lee to a duel over his statements, uh, as a result of which Lee was wounded. And sources disagree on where I think one one said in the arm, one said in like the side or whatever. You know, obviously it was it was not a fatal wound, but but it was a serious wound. But that was it. Lee was out of the army. And in 1782, while um, he, he retired, if I remember right, he retired to a farm in Virginia. But in 1782, as the war was actually wrapping up for the most part, while visiting Philadelphia, Lee caught a uh, fever. You know, there were these periodic outbreaks of fevers back then and ended up dying at the age of 50. And you've got to wonder, a guy like Charles Lee, as brilliant as he was, as ahead of his time, as, as his concepts of warfare were, what might he accomplish had he ever been given truly an independent command and not been under the thumb of Washington, what might Lee have accomplished? Who who knows? Who knows? Murray Rothbard, who's a huge proponent of Charles Lee, a huge defender of him, writes, quote, of Charles Lee's perception of Washington, quote, his final estimate of Washington was apt, a man whose stern and composed visage masked an impoverished intellect and a vindictive cunning that destroyed every man who aroused his envy or injured his pride. His only military victory in an innumerable stream of defeats was in one successful surprise of a drunken Hessian, quote. And of course, that last line in which I believe Rothbard is actually quoting from something Lee wrote, he's referring to the battle at Trenton. Charles Lee is little known by just kind of historically minded people who are not very well versed or or expert in the revolutionary era, except perhaps to some he is known as basically a foil to the perfect hero, George Washington. And it probably doesn't help that Washington has legions of biographers uh, and, and historians who focus on him as like the center of their career And meanwhile, Charles Lee has had, I think, maybe one or two biographies written of him, if that. Um, And the vast majority of of that legion of Washington biographers are absolutely worshipful of him. Historian John Shy says this of of Charles Lee in uh, an essay in the book, A People Numerous and Armed. Quote, Intellectual that he was, Lee tried to see the revolution as a consistent whole, with every aspect in rational harmony with every other. It was a fight by free men for their natural rights. Neither the fighters nor the goals were suited to the military techniques of despotism. The linear tactics, the rigid discipline, the long enlistments, the strict separation of the army from civic life that marked Frederick's Prussia. Lee envisioned a popular war of mass resistance, a war based on military service as an obligation of citizenship. He sought a war that would use the new light infantry tactics already in vogue among the military avant-garde of Europe, the same tactics the free men at Lexington and Concord had instinctively employed. Such men, could not be successfully hammered into goose-stepping automatons and made to fire by platoons, but properly trained and employed, they could not be defeated. Here lay the solution to any apparent contradiction in his opinion of American soldiers as against British regulars." John Shai goes on to say that um, Nathaniel Green's later success in the Deep South, in in the Carolinas in particular, uh, using some of the same approaches and and strategies and tactics that Charles Lee had advocated, uh, vindicates Charles Lee. And I I 100 percent agree with Shai on that. Um, There's an interesting book by an historian named William R. Polk entitled Violent Politics, A History of Insurgency, Terrorism and Guerrilla War from the American Revolution to Iraq. And in that book, Polk is rather positive on guerrilla warfare in the American Revolution in general, and the ideas of Charles Lee in particular. This is William R. Polk on Charles Lee. Quote, only one senior commander, Charles Lee, seems to have understood the political or social dimension of insurgency. For him, it was manifest in the very issue of military tactics. He despised the formal military notions that Washington accepted so readily from the British. Rather, Lee placed major emphasis on securing the population for the rebel cause end quote. And in fact, uh, Polk in this book, violent politics actually goes on for about a couple more pages after that quote i just read you on just how ahead of his time charles lee, charles lee really was and how he was devising concepts and tactics that later get successfully used by such 20th century insurgents as the Viet Cong, the uh, world war ii yugoslavian partisans and the ira to name just a few of many so charles lee not not treated well by history uh, I would argue did not nearly get a fair shake and was not appreciated for just how much of an ahead of ahead of uh, his time genius he really was was he a guy with some flaws and some problems that certainly didn't help him out in his career absolutely but um you know 99% of the time on questions of tactics and strategy um, he gets vindicated by events, as against the conventional-minded people like Washington or Steuben. I, I just want to briefly mention the impact of foreign intervention, uh, especially the the French, initially, and then also later uh, the Spanish. 1778 was the first year of French intervention into the war, and it had a big effect. In fact, pretty quickly. Uh, the British government, we know this from their, you know, documents and things, the British government started to see France as the much bigger threat and the much more important enemy than the Americans. This is very important because it caused the British to have to move troops around and redeploy things and ultimately to spread themselves thin in a lot of areas. So um, in the spring of 1778, the British government ordered 5,000 troops uh, from the American, you know, 13 rebellious colonies down to the Caribbean in order to protect the valuable Caribbean Sugar Islands from possible French attack. And uh, they also diverted 3,000 troops from the rebellious colonies down to the Floridas. Back then, uh, Florida was broken into two separate colonies uh, under the control of the British, uh, East Florida and West Florida. The British government also, at this point, started trying to open peace negotiations with the Americans. And um, Philadelphia was abandoned in the summer of 1778, in part at least due to this whole dimension of the French causing the British to have to stretch their military resources and shuffle things around and so on. And during this period, loyalists started to leave by the thousands. Many in the north went to Canada, especially a high number went to Halifax. Uh, Some went all the way back to England, and in the south, especially the deep south, uh, many fled to Florida, especially East Florida, which again, at the time, still a British colony uh, did not rebel. So this is a big deal. The The other countries getting involved in this war, you know, for their own purposes, but whether they're intending to or not, also greatly helping the American cause, taking some heat off them, causing the British to have to divert their, their troops and their Navy all over the place. And uh, this I think often, especially in American historiography, gets overlooked at just how much of of help that really was. You know, American nationalists want to take all the credit for everything all the time. They also want to take all the credit for beating Hitler, by the way, uh, even though by most estimates the Soviet Union did about 90 percent of that. Anyway, now I want to to bring up something. I've kind of mentioned his name a few times in passing, but I want to talk a little bit about Baron von Steuben, the uh, Prussian military officer who came to america in order to help questionable what that what that means in order to help the american uh, military he arrived in new hampshire in december of 1777 and in in just a few short months he'd become inspector general of the continental army uh, appointed to that position temporarily by washington and then made you know official by congress shortly thereafter Steuben's intention was ostensibly to improve the training and discipline of the Continental Army. But in practice, what this mostly meant was increasing the standardization and Europeanization of the army. In other words, trying to turn it into something more and more like the British opponent they were facing. Steuben knew no English, so he had to uh, yell his orders and things like that in French. And then he had a, a secretary who would translate them from French into english and the same thing had to be done when he wrote the um the field manual for the continental army he wrote in french translated into english by his secretary um a a manual entitled regulations for the order and discipline of the troops of the united states and this became the united states army's field manual through the war of 1812 and many of its ideas continued to influence um american military doctrine all the way through at least the war with mexico in the 1840s and by the way considering how badly the united states army performed in the war of 1812 that's not really a ringing endorsement after all in the war of 1812 the only major land victory for u.s forces was that of old hickory at the battle of new orleans which was for the most part fought unconventionally by unconventional forces not exactly by the book Now, I would say Steuben contributed a few helpful things. I'll give him that, although I'm skeptical of much of his overall influence on the army. But I I will give Steuben credit for two important positive contributions, which were not, in my estimation, the the whole notion of instilling yet more European-style drill warfare uh, discipline and tactics into the American troops. But Instead, I would say his helpful, important contributions were really, uh, number one, most importantly by far, sanitation. I'll give him absolute credit for that. He instituted procedures that drastically improved sanitation in the American uh, military camps. Sanitation had led to thousands of deaths. In this war, as in every war I believe before World War II, far more people actually die of disease and die of bullets and bayonets and whatnot and the american death rate in camp was often worse than on the battlefield and and so much of this was because there were just not good sanitation practices in place things like animal carcasses and human waste just being disposed of willy-nilly oftentimes right next to you know where the troops were were sleeping or where cooking was being done all that sort of thing and steuben instituted this is one, one case where I'll clearly agree that European armies were typically much better and more effective at was this whole sanitation thing. Uh, Steuben instituted much better rules, basic things that should be common sense, but apparently weren't, such as, hey, let's actually have a designated latrine area where we'll all do our business instead of just kind of doing it all over the place. And things like, hey, these latrine areas we're going to have, how about we make them on the opposite side of camp, from where the cooking areas are oh and let's also make sure that they're downhill from where the cooking areas are you know little things like that probably save thousands of lives and, and were much more helpful uh to to the continental army than was instilling yet more european style uh, procedures on them and another thing i'll, I'll give steuben credit for that that i think was helpful at least somewhat was bayonet fighting he did get the troops trained in how to fight with bayonets which very few of them uh had knowledge of how to do this before it was said that uh, for the most part the soldiers who even had bayonets used them more for cooking and for like as a tool than for fighting and the british of course uh, were not always the best marksmen but they were excellently trained with the bayonet and so what this meant was a lot of the time as long as the british could close the distance they could win a battle just by you know, being so much better at hand-to-hand and bayonet fighting. And um, there were a few battles where it seems this skill with the bayonet did help out and pay off the Continentals in several major uh, battles. For example, uh, crucial to a victory at the Battle of Stony Point in 1779, where there was a situation where Americans were short on ammo and ended up winning the battle with a bayonet charge. Remember, it's true that evidence shows that Americans were typically better marksmen than their British opponents, but if like most of the soldiers, other than those specialist riflemen, most of the soldiers are using smoothbore muskets, that means even if they are great marksmen, they can only hit realistically at under 75 yards. So question for you, how many times can anyone, even a very well-trained and drilled soldier, reload and fire that Charleville musket in the time it takes a bunch of redcoats to close 75 yards charging in. By the way, men armed with Kentucky rifles could, of course, hit at 200 or maybe even close to 300 yards. But remember, on the downside, their reloading procedure is even a bit slower than a smoothbore musket, and Kentucky rifles weren't fitted for bayonets at all. Um, By the way, many riflemen carried a hatchet for close quarters. Uh, they, They tried to avoid close quarters battle as much as possible, but... They carried a hatchet. They learned from the Indians um, that that was a good tool to have in your belt, just in case you had to go at it with someone right, you know, in spitting distance. So those are two things. I'll admit, you know, bayonet fighting today, we think of it as being kind of stupid and whatever. Back then, it was still really important just because these are single shot muzzle loading weapons we're dealing with. And it is always helpful. To have another tool in your toolbox if you're a warrior even if it's one that you might not use every single time but hey you might find yourself in a situation where it is the best thing for the job even occasionally today it doesn't happen often for sure but even occasionally today there will be a situation where um soldiers will get themselves out of a tight spot with the bayonet there was actually an instance in afghanistan not too many years ago uh, of british soldiers who basically were in danger of getting overrun uh, by, you know, Taliban or whoever. And they were, they were um, outnumbered and running out of ammo and whatever. And apparently a, a couple of just, you know, old school, hard-nosed British sergeants had them fix bayonets and they, like, did some damage. I think one of them even won the Victoria Cross or something. So there is something to be said for the utility of cold steel when times are really, uh, you know, when, when things are really looking desperate. But regarding Steuben on the downside as I indicated before, he did increase the trend already begun by George Washington of turning the American troops into a more European style force despite the fact that fighting this way played to British strengths rather than to American strengths. I mean the way I think about it is let's say, you know, looking at the world of like mixed martial arts, if you're a really good grappler And you're fighting an opponent who's known to be a top notch boxer, but maybe not as good of a grappler. And you're going to be in a cage match, you know, fighting mixed martial arts with this guy. Would it be sensible to try to keep the fight on the feet? In other words, you're a much better grappler and you're deliberately going to choose to try to fight this guy in a boxing type fight, uh, striking on the feet. Or come on, would it not be much better, much more prudent, much more tactically sound to do your best to take the fight to the ground as quickly as possible where you know you've got the edge? Likewise, does it really make rational sense to fight the British using conventional European style warfare when they are one of the most proficient armies in the world at that particular way of fighting? Well, to try and fight them their way, uh, to me, is as stupid as being that excellent grappler who chooses to go toe-to-toe in a punching match with a world-class boxer. It's just moronic. But, in the minds of people like Washington and Steuben, European-style 18th century drill warfare and large set-piece battles... We're the only correct way to fight. And it's absolutely true, something few people appreciate who've not studied the question much, that so much of war and what it is, and what commanders are willing to authorize or not authorize, and what troops are willing to do versus not do, so much of it is simply a cultural construct. What's considered taboo? What's considered the right way, the proper way to fight? What's considered fair? What's considered unfair? what's considered cheating. These are all just arbitrary cultural constructs. I want to briefly mention something that often gets tons of attention, even though it didn't really matter a whole hell of a lot to the, to the overall war or anything. Um, it just gets so much attention because it's a soap opera-y thing, it's drama, whatever, but to me it's just not that, not that terribly important, and that is the betrayal of Benedict Arnold. Now, Arnold was wounded and partially crippled, actually, at the Battle of Saratoga and was somewhat resentful of what, from his perspective, was him not getting nearly enough respect for his contributions to the war and particularly to the victory at Saratoga. He was felt like Horatio Gates was getting all the praise and, and he, Benedict Arnold, deserved a lot more. Well, after Saratoga, now that he's partially uh, crippled, he was sent to be the commandant of the fort at West Point, and he ended up eventually betraying to the British. And things that might have inclined him to this betrayal, uh, first off, again, he'd long complained about his treatment uh, by the Congress. He argued with, you know, at least a little bit of plausibility that he'd really been the one to win the Battle of Saratoga. Um, He also for whatever reason, he really disliked the alliance with France. I don't, I don't know why I've not studied that question enough to have a, a reasonable answer on that. Um, maybe it's just simple, like, you know, prejudice against the French, I, I guess. Also, and, and and maybe one of the more important things, uh, his wife, whom he married during the war, was a Philadelphia socialite who was from basically a loyalist-leaning family. And also uh, the only thing that might even have been more important to his turn than that, he had accumulated major personal debts. And so in return for 20,000 British pounds, which is huge money back then, Benedict Arnold agreed to betray West Point to British General Henry Clinton. And the way this was found out was that John Andre, who was General Clinton's assistant, his, his top aide, was actually caught in civilian clothing after having a meeting with Benedict Arnold. And when, when the truth was gotten out of him, he was executed by hanging as a spy. Now, Arnold himself managed to escape, and he actually became a brigadier in the British military and later participated in an expedition with the British military uh, to Virginia. And his name has ever since been an absolute byword for betrayal, But think about this for a moment. Had the British won the war, of course, our textbooks in America now would probably tout Benedict Arnold as a wonderful, virtuous, and clever patriotic hero. And of course, the same textbooks in that alternate America would portray the American leaders, the guys who are now lionized as the founding fathers and the patriots, would portray them as terrorists and troublemakers and so on, because remember, history is always written by the victors. By late 1778, the British high command decided that a southern strategy might be helpful. They felt like the war in the north had pretty much become stalemated. They look down south and they think conquering the south might offer a good way to um, weaken the rebellion by kind of going around the stalemate up north. Right. And that's a classic British move in war. You find them doing again and again and again over many centuries. Uh, they all the way from wars before the American Revolution up through recent wars. The British often hit somewhere else if the primary theater of the war is stalemated. And sometimes this works great and sometimes it backfires. Um, you know, when Winston Churchill authorized the Gallipoli attack in World War One backfired horribly right that's you know an example of it going bad so the idea is up till this point in the war the vast bulk of major fighting has been taking place in the middle colonies and of course at the very beginning in new england so now they're going to shift south for the first time um, and from the british perspective there were lots of things to recommend operating in the south there are generally more inlets and navigable rivers in the south which gives the British more opportunity to employ their maritime advantage in ways that can help them move around men and supplies. And another thing was um, at least some areas of the South supposedly had more loyalists than than the North did. Uh, in some areas that may have been true, although, as we'll see, it's not clear that that was actually true throughout the South. And one more thing the British thought would be advantageous about operating in the South was that they saw the black slaves in the south as potential recruits to their side and you know they'd promise them their freedom if they helped out the british army or joined the british army or whatever. Now of course to um, southern slave owners this is absolutely horrific and satanic that somebody would would try such a thing. So in December of 1778 the british begin their southern strategy starting with about 3000 redcoats under the command of a lieutenant colonel named Archibald Campbell who took Savannah, Georgia which was you know, the only real decent sized city at all in the entire state of Georgia, which was the least populated state at the time. The small number of American uh, defenders in the Savannah area put up a little token resistance, but then quickly either fled or surrendered. Now, Lieutenant Colonel Campbell was smart enough to understand the importance of hearts and minds of the civilian population in a war like this. So he gave strict orders to his men not to do anything like plundering or misbehaving or any of that nonsense. And they apparently followed his orders in Savannah. And as a result, the uh, fairly large loyalist leaning population in Georgia was not alienated by the British army as they had done in some areas up north. For the first few months of 1779, things continued to go well for the British in Georgia, and they even began building a loyalist militia in the area. Lieutenant Colonel Campbell wrote, quote, "I have got the country in arms against the Congress. I have taken a stripe and a star from the rebel flag of America," end quote, referring to, you know, Georgia, basically saying, "I've retaken Georgia for the empire." However, He had not actually pacified the whole of Georgia and militia began to move in from the Carolinas and um, especially into the more kind of inland backcountry areas of Georgia. Meanwhile, a a British brigadier general named Augustine uh, Prevost came up from East Florida with reinforcements and ended up taking over command of the British forces in Georgia for the time being. Now, the American commander of the Southern Continental Army forces at the time, a guy named Benjamin Lincoln, actually had more men than the British did at this moment. And so he moves his army down into Georgia. In response, the British moved on Charleston, but ended up not actually taking the city because they just didn't have the manpower to do it. Yet. Benjamin Lincoln, even though he had larger forces than the British did um, at the moment in this particular area ended up doing very poorly and um you know the british just beat him mercilessly meanwhile spain was on the move not too far away from georgia spain was shaking things up they had entered the war They entered the war in June of 1779. Technically, they were only an ally of France, not officially an ally of America. But France, of course, was an ally of America. And of course, de facto, by fighting against the British anywhere, the Spanish are going to be helping America, whether they mean to or not. And one of the things the Spanish really wanted to try to take back uh, as a result of this war was the Floridas, as they were now known, East and West Florida. And Bernardo de Galvez, who was then governor of Louisiana, which was under Spanish control, he moved on West Florida with the Spanish force and found it lightly defended. Now, West Florida at the time, think basically the Florida Panhandle, but bigger. Think of it being like the modern Florida Panhandle, but extending much further west. In fact, extending almost all the way to New Orleans, stopping just short of New Orleans and extending uh, quite a bit further north than it currently does uh, into what today is um you know the southern parts of mississippi and alabama and even a little bit of uh, southwestern georgia and then east florida at the time was basically the remainder of the modern day state of florida and um Galvez found West Florida surprisingly lightly defended, and he began uh, systematically taking towns that the way the borders were back then were in West Florida, towns that today are in other states, uh, towns such as Natchez and Baton Rouge and Mobile. And he just kept steamrolling through. I think he got delayed by weather a few times. Um, that was what kept him from doing it quickly. But in fact, by 1781, he'd succeeded in taking Pensacola, which was the capital of the colony of West Florida. So the Spanish were really, really doing some stuff. And there were goings on in the Caribbean this whole time. Both the Spanish and the Dutch were making moves against some of the British islands in the Caribbean. The Americans uh, suffered a major blow in May of 1780 when, finally, because the British had sent more troops down to the south, they were able to take the biggest southern port city at the time, Charleston, South Carolina. General Henry Clinton came down from New York with over 7,000 additional redcoats, and was able to take Charleston. After a uh, siege and a bombardment of the town for a while, Charleston surrendered on May 12, 1780, and over 2,500 Continental soldiers were taken prisoner there. Soon after this victory, General Clinton returned to New York, and a general named uh, Lord Cornwallis was put in charge of British forces in the South. Meanwhile, Horatio Gates, the hero of Saratoga, was briefly brought back from the uh, semi-exile he'd been sent into following the Conway Cabal and uh, was placed in command of Southern forces. The Congress had lost faith in uh, Benjamin Lincoln. But like I said, Gates didn't end up staying in charge in the South for very long because of what happens at a battle called Camden in South Carolina in August of 1780. There, Gates' army suffered an absolutely crushing defeat. Uh, His army ended up being really routed, and about a thousand of them were captured. And a major reason of what happened here is that Gates Gates really made a huge error. He placed his militia units on his left flank, uh, rather than putting Continental regulars there. And this... This was the area that in a line of troops would very often see the toughest fighting and would face the hardest attacks. And he put his militia there and the British broke them and ended up winning the battle largely because of that. The, the Continental regulars had performed well in the battle. For whatever reason, Gates had really blundered uh, in contrast to his very prudent but effective performance in the Saratoga campaign. Um, perhaps because of the success he'd had with the militia up north, he thought the militia that he had at Camden would be equally effective. But the fact was, for the most part, the militia that Gates had as of the Battle of Camden Camden, were much less trained and experienced than were a lot of the northern militia he'd been able to use at Saratoga. And, And in fact, even up north, the militia were often badly performing in conventional close quarters type battles. So Gates puts these, um, even by militia standards, relatively untrained militia units at an important part of the battle in this big conventional set-piece battle, and then, like, apparently didn't think that they would uh, probably break or whatever, didn't take this into account. Later, savvier commanders are going to understand this idea and are actually going to use it as part of a tactic on several occasions. Well, anyway, after the Battle of Camden... Uh, the Southern Continental Army looked almost finished. Gates was removed from command, largely under pressure from Southern members of the Continental Congress, and under the recommendation of George Washington, probably one of the most uh, correct recommendations the guy made the whole damn war, Nathaniel Green, who'd never set foot in the South before, uh, would be transferred down to try to rescue the situation. Which, after the losses at Charleston and Camden, was admittedly looking pretty bleak. However, uh, even as the British were whipping the Southern Continental Army on the battlefield, the backcountry areas of the Carolinas, the inland areas, the kind of, you know, foothills of the Appalachians, which were the more frontier type areas, there things really started to erupt into violence and chaos and uh, small-scale partisan guerrilla warfare between loyalist factions and, um, you know, pro-rebel factions. And and the Loyalists were often referred to as Tories, and the pro-rebel, you know, pro-American independence fighters were often referred to as Whigs, W-H-I-G-S. And this nomenclature goes back many, many years in English history, um, all the way back to the English Civil War in some cases. And the idea is that a, a Tory is a more conservative in the conventional european meaning of that term a tory is somebody who defends the the power of the monarch and um is kind of anti-democratic and just wants to doggedly stick to tradition and aristocracy and all that and uh, is a defender of the established church the state church whereas the Whig is the more uh, for lack of a better term liberal and or libertarian ish type person who wants things to be more uh, democratic, wants there to be a little bit less. Not that they were necessarily against aristocracy, the English Whigs, but they, they at least wanted to moderate the power of the aristocracy. They certainly wanted to limit the power of the monarchy. Some of them were even against the idea of the more radical Whigs. So un- understand, this is the nomenclature that was still being used, even at this point in the American conflict. They're still oftentimes talking about it in these terms. Historian Stephen Conway, um, on the question of why the backcountry, as he put it, burst into flame, and why so many people joined this, uh, what he and some other historians refer to as a second revolution in the southern backcountry, uh, he, he says these factors were important. First, quote, the plundering assaults and rapes committed by members of the army on South Carolinians, meaning the British army on South Carolinians, almost certainly played a part tarleton's british legion gained a special notoriety in this respect end quote and there he's referring to a guy a british lieutenant colonel named banister tarleton who commanded a unit of loyalist soldiers known as the uh, british legion or loyalist legion sometimes called tarleton's raiders and these guys were notorious for ruthlessness and brutality in fact these uh, sorts of loyalist fighters often tended to behave much worse, much more viciously towards civilians than did actual British professional soldiers. Um, Another factor Conway identifies as causing this outbreak of violence in the backcountry was ethnic rivalries. In many areas of the southern backcountry, Germans and scots irish settlers had long been kind of, uh, you know, not real fans of each other, to put it mildly. They had had animosity. And the fact that many of these German colonists in the back country were outspoken supporters of British authority encouraged a lot of Scots-Irish to say, well, hell, if those bastards are are for the the British government, then I'm a diehard, you know, pro-independence patriot. And so that added fuel to the fire, ethnic rivalry. Another factor Conway identifies is the british made a um proclamation as they were operating in the south that anyone in the area who didn't actively assist the british war effort would be considered as a rebel in, in other words it wasn't just enough that you weren't uh that you were refraining from assisting the rebel cause you now were obligated to actively assist the british uh, just to not be considered a traitor and so this actually had an effect that was not what the British intended. This proclamation actually pushed many people who would have probably preferred to have just stayed out of the whole thing, pushed them to have to take sides. And most of these sorts of people, when they were forced to choose sides, actually ended up siding signing with the rebels rather than with the British. However, what Conway argues was the most important factor for continued resistance in the backcountry was their belief that the revolution was still going gangbusters up north. He writes, quote, significantly in the Tidewater area, which also experienced the distresses associated with the British military presence, there was no comparable uprising, end quote. Tidewater, if you don't know, it refers to the more low-lying coastal areas of the south. Now, I would add that the backcountry people, honestly, were just tougher and more self-reliant than the Tidewater people, who were maybe a little bit more urbanized, lived a little bit more comfortably. Um, Also, the backcountry frontier people owned far fewer slaves. And put all these things together, it simply meant that the backcountry frontier people were much more difficult for the British to exert pressure on than were the more, quote-unquote, civilized Tidewater residents. Historian Don Higginbotham, whom I find to be a pretty sound military analyst on most things, other than his huge admiration of George Washington, says that, in his mind, the two main mistakes the British made in the South from the very beginning to end of, of the campaign were, quote, they failed to digest their acquisitions before gulping down more territory, and they neglected to give the Tories adequate protection, end quote. In other words, the British operating in the South failed to really realize, at least enough of them failed to realize, that they were fighting primarily what today we would call a counterinsurgency war. And that because they failed to make this realization, their strategy remained largely conventional. They marched around in big formations and units, winning conventional battles and taking cities with great success, but... As soon as the British would take a city or win a battle and then move on, the places that they had just quote-unquote conquered would often quickly come under control of rebel guerrillas or, on occasion, even continental regulars. By the way, once Nathaniel Green took control of American forces in the South, and we'll get to that in a moment... Um, there you've got a general who pretty shrewdly understands the nature of the situation and who is able to effectively capitalize it against the British army. So you have this just mostly small scale stuff but happening all over the place and it's very chaotic and violent uh, throughout the southern backcountry. And Don Higginbotham writes of this chaos in the backcountry quote, In 1780 and 1781, there were dozens possibly hundreds, of skirmishes in the interior of the Lower South. Probably no record exists of many of these encounters, especially those involving a handful of Whigs and Tories on either side. In the Lower South, with the destruction of two continental armies and the disappearance of state governments, the revolution had taken a turn to the left, and guerrilla warfare had replaced orthodox fighting." And what anecdotal evidence we have on this indicates that both sides commonly committed atrocities against each other. This was absolutely a dirty war. And what ended up happening, I mean, both both uh, the the civilians and, and partisans who were Whigs and those who were Tories were doing nasty things to each other and were suffering at the hands of the other. But. In practice, this state of affairs of all this little chaotic small-scale fighting ended up causing a lot more trouble for the British army than it did to what remained of the Continental Army in the South. British commanders decided that the only way to take the wind out of the sails of the backcountry rebels in South Carolina would be to move into North Carolina, which they believed was the source of support for the rebels in South Carolina. So they began moving up into North Carolina in September of 1780. You had a main army under uh, General Cornwallis, and then he broke off a piece of of his forces, kind of the militia, and sent them more inland into North Carolina. Now, this uh, Loyalist militia outfit that was sent into western North Carolina was under the command of a British major named Patrick Ferguson, and he's leading this Loyalist militia Um, through western North Carolina, Cornwallis is some distance away, and um, Ferguson starts to get harassed by backwoods guerrilla attacks, and as a result, he, on October 6, 1780, put his forces up on a high area called King's Mountain, and prepares to defend, thinking, all right, I'll stop here, and uh, these, these guys will come in and attack me, and then I'll be able to take them out in a fair fight. Well, the next day, Ferguson's loyalist militia were soundly defeated by backwoods uh, riflemen and guerrilla fighters. Ferguson himself and many of his men were killed in this battle that became known as the Battle of Kings Mountain. And the remainder of his men who weren't killed were captured in this vicious battle of rebel militia versus loyalist militia. The rebels, who, by the way, were commanded by the father of Davy Crockett, only suffered about a fifth as many casualties as they inflicted on the loyalists. And the main reason they won—I mean, the the rebels—the if I remember right—the numbers were pretty evenly matched. I think the rebels had a slight edge, but nothing huge. And um, the the loyalists, of course, had the advantage of being up on a little mountain. So, how on earth are the rebel militia able to inflict such an ass kicking onto? the Loyalists, the main reason was better marksmanship, both in terms of skill and equipment, is these rebel militia in this battle were mostly very experienced frontier hunters and Indian fighters, and uh, many of them were armed with Kentucky rifles, so they had better hardware and better skill, and they also apparently very wisely used cover and concealment to attack and and snipe and avoid getting taken out by um, Loyalist counterfire. So it was a pretty significant loss to the British. It, I believe, was the biggest battle of the entire war that was just militia versus militia. And as a result of the American victory at King's Mountain, General Cornwallis ended up pulling his main army out of North Carolina and back into South Carolina for the time being. Now, roughly around the same time as the Battle of King's Mountain, Nathaniel Greene was arriving in the South to take command of what was left of the southern continental army forces and it was a really desperate situation he was being plugged into. He had uh, very few troops. Much of them were in very sorry shape as you can imagine. Morale wasn't good and he's got to figure out how to turn this thing around and start creating some real trouble for the British main army. Nathaniel Green is a really interesting uh, historical character. He was from Rhode Island and Uh, was born to a Quaker family there, and apparently he was like the problem child of his family and his community from rather early on. Apparently, the particular Quaker community that he grew up with, you know, his family and and neighbors and associates, were a group of Quakers who had kind of an anti-education bias. Their attitude, as I understand it from, you know, reading a few biographies of Nathaniel Green and whatnot, the attitude was basically, The only education these Quakers supported was education that was either a directly related to a career you were pursuing or b religious in nature. And they really looked down upon anyone who pursued education that didn't fit into one of those two categories. Now, this is not, you know, all Quakers fall into this category. I I know there are plenty of Quakers who are very much, you know, pro education, pro knowledge. But just the particular group that he was from were like that. And Nathaniel Green was just one of these guys who was very curious about everything and he wanted to study all kinds of things and that right away a lot of his friends and family really were put off by this thought there was something wrong with him and then they really started to think there was something wrong with him when a lot of the things he started liking to study especially as a young man were military in nature books about tactics and strategy or books about military history he just found it very intriguing and they really to uh, typical you know pacifist questions uh this is not something that you want your son to be obsessed with learning about. But Nathaniel Green was learning all this stuff, and even though he had no real military experience before the Revolutionary War came, he had studied a lot of these ideas a lot, and he was, by all accounts, a very smart guy. So, again, another one of these self-taught guys who turns out to be a bit of a military genius when the war comes. Um, He was a fairly successful small businessman like merchant, and uh, when the war started to beckon, he was able to get himself commissioned as a high-level officer, I think actually a general, in the Rhode Island militia, despite not really having any prior military uh, service experience. He was able to do this basically for political reasons. And he was talented enough that uh, his army, you know, later went to Boston to participate in the siege of the British forces there. And that eventually became the beginning of the Continental Army, all those New England militia. And he was talented enough that he eventually got made into uh, one of of the generals right below Washington in command of the Continental Army. He commanded, I believe, one of the brigades um, of Washington's Continental Army. Now, he had participated in a lot of the early battles of the war in the north, But then um, around the time of the winter at Valley Forge, he got sent to be the quartermaster general of the Continental Army, the guy in in, in charge of supplies, in charge of logistics. And he did, by all accounts, a pretty good job with what he had in that role uh, in terms of resources. But he was hankering the whole time to go back out in the field and lead troops into battle. And finally, when things are looking just horrible in the South, he gets his opportunity. This is the guy who's given the task of turning around what looked like a very bad situation in the South. And at first, he might seem like an unlikely man to succeed at this, but he ends up succeeding. The Georgia and Carolina backcountry were continuing to descend into violent chaos of partisan warfare, and Nathaniel Green said shortly after assuming his command, quote, The Whigs and Tories pursue one another with the most relentless fury, killing and destroying each other wherever they meet. Indeed, a great part of this country is already laid waste and in the utmost danger of becoming a desert, end quote. Again, notice he's still using that English political terminology of Whigs and Tories, Right With the uh, the Whigs being the rebels and the Tories being the loyalists. Now, Green decides, in part because he's smart and in part because he understands the situation in the South when he takes command, Lee decides he's going to use some pretty unconventional approaches to this war. And he and his subordinates, the guys who uh, were under his command, who, to give him credit, he often was willing to give guys who were talented and competent, a pretty long leash to operate fairly independently. And some of the guys who worked with Green in one capacity or another down south, some of the most legendary people of the war, including Daniel Morgan and uh, Francis Marion, the Swamp Fox. And the success that all these guys had using unconventional, at least for that time, very unconventional uh, tactics and strategy against the British forces, as far as I'm concerned, very much vindicates Charles Lee and all the things he had been pushing for, uh, falling on deaf ears, because basically Charles Lee had a crappy personal relationship for George with George Washington and had for a long time. So when Charles Lee suggested some of these guerrilla warfare approaches, it uh, fell on deaf ears for Washington. On the other hand, Nathaniel Green had a very positive personal relationship with George Washington, and so Washington was willing to give him the elbow room to do some of these things down South. I'm not sure if Green was consciously or deliberately adopting some of the ideas of Charles Lee in his campaigns in the South, or whether he was just pragmatically hitting on the same ideas simply because he was intelligently responding to the conditions he found in the South. Um, Green hadn't really gotten along well personally with Lee, but on the other hand, he had defended Lee somewhat regarding Monmouth and Lee's court-martial, so um, who knows? Who knows? But in the South, Nathaniel Green fought a campaign based largely on a strategy of mobility and maneuver, moving quickly to prevent the British from being able to pin down his army anywhere. But then when the conditions seemed favorable and when he chose fighting, in other words, Greene really had the initiative almost the entire time he was operating in the South regardless of what the British thought they were accomplishing and and the British think they're winning all these battles. But in fact, Lee is the one choosing when battles happen and choosing when battles don't happen and choosing when battles stop that have happened. Whenever things seemed favorable, Green would um, make a battle happen one way or another and would inflict significant casualties on the British and then would end each engagement with an orderly withdrawal at the time of his choosing and Nathaniel Green once summed up this strategy by saying, quote, we fight, get beat, rise, and fight again. Nathaniel Green did not technically win any major battle in his southern campaigns. However, he kept fighting battles of his choosing that were most of the time much costlier for the British and would simply pull his army out after inflicting significant damage. Also, as time went on in the south the british started to shoot themselves in the foot with some of their b- barbaric behavior towards both combatants and not non-combatants including uh, civilians and even on some occasions were told women and children they didn't stick to the ideas remember that first uh, british officer campbell who started invading the south he was uh, very very strict on not letting his troops harass and molest civilians in order to keep public opinion friendly or at least neutral to the british but um, later officers were completely not that way and some of them such as uh, the famous tarleton were the exact opposite were encouraging their troops to commit things that would be considered war crimes and atrocities even back then now to be fair some british officers did strive Uh, did continue to strive to keep their troops from behaving badly towards the locals but others did not try and some who tried were not successful and every time that british or loyalist forces would use barbarism whether um, by intent or just sort of spontaneously in the heat of a moment they would they would uh, end up backfiring the the barbarism would backfire because it would strengthen the resistance. It would cause more people who had been on the fence to side with the insurgency, just like what's called in modern military thinking circles, fourth generation warfare, sometimes abbreviated 4 GW. When you're dealing with fourth generation warfare, when you're dealing with a popular insurgency, here's the reality. The harder you crack down, the more you strengthen your enemy and and add to his numbers and add to his popular support. That's how it works. So, for example, when Lieutenant Colonel Bannister Tarleton and his Tory legion began using barbarism, both against combatants and non-combatants, it actually pushed more and more people into vigorously supporting the rebel cause. Now, Tarleton's unit, began gaining notoriety when they allegedly annihilated a group of retreating continentals who were supposedly waving a white flag. Don Higginbotham writes of Charlton, he was ruthless by the standards of warfare in his day, receiving condemnation from some British officers as well as his adversaries he leveled houses and raised fields of suspected Whigs. His victims, according to Francis Marion, were often women and children found sitting in the open air round a fire without a blanket or any clothing but what they had on. Sherman's march to the sea nearly a century later had its counterpart in the raids of Bannister Tarleton through the Carolinas, end quote. So, Tarleton was basically using, though on a smaller scale, of course, similar tactics that later generals such as William Tecumseh Sherman and Philip Sheridan used, first against Southerners in the not so Civil War, and then after that against the American Indians out west. Only difference was Sherman and Sheridan were able to use it on such a scale that it actually, quote unquote, worked. And from the from the point of view of crushing resistance through brutality, whereas Tarleton, you know, only had his one little unit of guys. Um, It was enough to terrorize people and and create tons of new enemies for the British. But Tarleton didn't have enough guys to um, actually inflict quite enough brutality and atrocities to cow the entire population. Now Another guy operating in the South, like I said, was Daniel Morgan, the famous uh, Virginia rifleman. And for a lot of the Southern campaign, Morgan was operating somewhat independently from Green. They would try and coordinate their maneuvers as much as possible, but they were often a bit of a distance from each other. And um, you know, Green was, was comfortable, had enough confidence in Morgan to kind of cut him and his guys loose and let them go cause trouble while he did something else. Daniel Morgan was um, way back at the beginning of the war put in charge of forming one of the original Virginia companies of riflemen way back in 1775. And his men uh, continued to play important roles in several battles in the early part of the war. Uh, He was involved in the expedition to Canada, which the ill-fated expedition to Canada early in the war. And in 1777, Morgan and his men, if you'll recall, played an important role in the Battle of Saratoga by sniping British officers very effectively. And in 1780, Daniel Morgan, who had risen to the rank of general by that point in the war, was sent south and put under Nathaniel Greene's command. And Morgan really, really wanted to get at Tarleton's Tory Legion, and eventually he got his chance at a battle called Calpens in South Carolina in January of 1781. It's known as Cowpens because it literally was a grazing area that many local farmers used for their livestock. It was a, a little hill that was very grassy. And Morgan decides this is a great place to set up and uh, provoke a battle with Tarleton's Tory Legion, whom he knew were uh, in the area looking for him. Morgan uh, very, very cleverly arranged his forces and executed a plan almost perfectly that, that was very brilliant he knew that a British officer like Tarleton would have nothing but disdain for the American militia. And so what Daniel Morgan did was he hid his main force of uh, Continentals and riflemen off kind of to the sides and a little bit behind the hill. And he put his militia out front and he told them basically, you know, trade a volley or two with the, uh, with, with the British when they come in, you know, with the British and the loyalists when they come in and then retreat over the hill. So the British attacked and the militia fired and then began retreating, and the British thought it was a rout. They didn't realize that this was a planned retreat. The British charge in very aggressively, um, willy-nilly, and what happens is, as they pursue the fleeing militia over the hill, suddenly they realize, holy crap, there's a whole frickin' army hidden over here, and um, the main bulk of Daniel Morgan's forces sweep in on both sides in what's known as a double envelopment. It's similar, although on a much smaller scale, to what Hannibal had done to uh, the Roman army at the Battle of Canai way back in, I want to say, 216 B.C., somewhere around there, during the Punic Wars between Rome and Carthage. And it worked brilliantly. I mean, it took it took advantage of, of British psychology. It took advantage of terrain. The plan worked um, almost perfectly. You know, there are a few little hiccups here and there, but it worked well enough that Morgan won an overwhelming victory only Bannister Tarleton himself and a few of his men managed to escape. The rest were either killed or captured. As Daniel Morgan himself put it, he'd given Tarleton, quote, a devil of a whipping. Tarleton had lost over 100 killed and over 700 captured. As a result of the Battle of Calpins, Morgan's forces had lost a whopping 12 men. The next big battle that happens uh, in the South during this campaign was the Battle of Guilford Courthouse in North Carolina in March of 1781. And there, Nathaniel Green tried to use tactics very similar to what Morgan had used so successfully at Calpins. He put the militia out front. He had most of his main forces further back. Uh, he planned on having the militia retreat in the face of British attacks, trying to sucker the British in um, to to get enveloped. Just like Morgan, he had much of his guys uh, somewhat concealed, but unfortunately for him, uh, for whatever reason, his forces were simply spaced too far apart from each other in order for the the tactic to work as well as it had for Morgan at Calpens, And it ended up turning into um, a much messier fight. The battle lasted three hours. Uh, Neither side really got the upper hand. Green finally decided to withdraw his army. Now, this is one of those battles, like Bunker Hill, where the British technically win because at the end of the fighting, they're in control of of the battlefield, basically, and the other guys are leaving. But like in the case of Bunker Hill, the British actually suffered much more casualties in their alleged victory. The British at Guilford Courthouse actually suffered about twice as many casualties, uh, combining killed and wounded, as the Americans did. Don Higginbotham says of it, quote, if ever a general won a Pyrrhic victory, it was Lord Cornwallis, whose army virtually ceased to exist as a fighting force, end quote. And he's talking about as a result of their alleged victory at Guilford Courthouse. And this was Nathaniel Green's genius. He was able to keep having these kinds of battles where um, the other side is actually taking worse punishment. And then Green just at, at some point, for whatever reason, decides, all right, let's call it off gets his guys out. And he just, you know, it, it's, it's almost like a, a big version of uh, hit and run using conventional military forces. You know, you sock the other guy a bloody nose and then you just back off. And the other guy says, oh, I won because you backed off. It's like, well, I meant to back off. And then the last major battle of the war in the Carolinas was a a battle called Utah Springs. But it's Utah not spelled like the present-day state of Utah. It's spelled E-U-T-A-W, Springs. September 1781 in South Carolina. This was another bloody battle that was not really decisive. This one lasted even longer than Guilford Courthouse. It ground on for four hours both sides suffered around 500 casualties before Green decided to cut it off. However, though both sides lost about as many men uh, in terms of casualties, and though the field was left in British hands when Green pulled his forces out, the Americans had, during the battle, managed to take about 400 prisoners. So, once again, this is a British, quote-unquote, win that was ultimately much more costly to them than it was to the Americans. So this whole time, Green never won a major battle while he was commander of Southern forces. The only really decisive American battlefield victories in the conventional sense of a battle of this entire campaign were the militia victory at King's Mountain and Daniel Morgan's win at Calpin's. But nonetheless, Nathaniel Green clearly won the campaign and he contributed significantly to winning the war. Had he not so skillfully frustrated and damaged Cornwallis's forces, Cornwallis would not have been forced to do what he ends up doing, which is to pull his army out to Yorktown in um, Virginia, which ends up setting himself up for Washington and French Washington's army and French forces to finish him off. And again, all the British so-called victories against Nathaniel Greene in the South were these brutal Pyrrhic victories in which the British actually suffered worse than the Americans did. It, it's accurate to say you could call Green's battles in this campaign all tactical defeats but strategic victories and ask yourself what's more important, winning this particular battle or winning the larger goal of this campaign in this war? Both Daniel Morgan and Nathaniel Green were huge cheerleaders of George Washington during and after the war. And um, this is perhaps surprising in light of how much Washington was so wedded to conventional European warfare and how much Morgan and Green were willing to use unconventional tactics and strategy. So, you know, that's something that I would hold against them as how much they were cheerleaders and sycophants of George Washington. I would also hold against them uh, both Daniel Morgan and Nathaniel Greene after the war became politically federalists. In other words, advocates of a very strong central government, which most high level commanders of the Revolutionary War tended to lean federalist. And there's obvious reasons why someone who was like a general would be instinctively inclined to favor a large central government. Right. Place to their personality and their experience. But that said, in purely military terms, both Daniel Morgan and Nathaniel Greene deserve their due as some of the most effective geniuses in this entire war. Don Higginbotham in The War of American Independence writes of Greene's campaign of 1781 In a whirlwind campaign from April to July, Greene and his South Carolina allies, by which he's referring to partisans, Uh, led by Francis Marion and people like that, uh, Green and his South Carolina allies had cleared the enemy from virtually all of the Lower South, except for a narrow belt from Charleston to Savannah, end quote. And another uh, longer quote from Higginbotham on this, quote, In short, Green made up his own game and compelled Cornwallis and Rodden, who was another guy commanding in the South for a while, to play it largely by his rules. It was predominantly a game of rapid movement, highlighted by constant pressure applied to the enemy to keep him off balance. It involved an assortment of methods, hit-and-run raids, assaults on supply lines, sieges, and fixed battles. Green was always bold, but never rash, always flexible, always willing to give up the battlefield in order to return for a better day. To the British, Green and his partisan allies were a swarm of hornets, drive them away, and back they came again and again to sting in a new and often unexpected place. A single sting inflicted a minor wound to the British lion. But when the hornets were through, the lion was all but dead." Quote. So I consider Nathaniel Green uh, a military genius like up there in the Sun Tzu mold. If, you, if you're familiar with Sun Tzu and the art of war, um, I think when you look at how Nathaniel Green operated in the southern campaign, it's something that Sun Tzu would probably be very proud of. By the way, as far as I know, there's absolutely no evidence that Nathaniel Green would have been familiar with Sun Tzu. I don't think any Westerner was at this time. But uh, it's, it's funny how, you know, it, it'll line up, right? Somebody who's unfamiliar with the ideas of somebody on the other side of the world is nonetheless independently uh, having the same uh, brilliant insights, Aside from what he accomplished militarily, and again, he started, Green did, with like a, a bare skeleton of a military in the South that was in horrible shape. And yet he was able to have this uh, success and build his forces and so on. Um, aside from his military success, Green also deserves credit for calming down the often chaotic and horrendous violence in many areas of the South and uh, he even succeeded in greatly reducing violence directed against Tory civilians in his areas of operation. And he's another one of these guys. He was a a stickler that his troops and his militia would not misbehave towards civilians, whether they were Whig or Tory. Nathaniel Green is a guy, he just doesn't get the respect he deserves I think a lot of the time Um, somebody like Robert E. Lee or somebody like Napoleon Bonaparte you know these guys get a lot more credit and fame and so on as a military genius than somebody like Nathaniel Green but remember Lee and Bonaparte while they both had some brilliant victories in battle and did some brilliant tactical maneuvers here and there at the end of the day they were both losers when it came to actually winning the wars they fought green may not have been a great battle winner but he was a brilliant war winner well the end game of 1781 and the end game of the war comes about um with the american army overall in terrible shape um, especially the the main force of the continental army under the command of washington Um, the the northern and middle colonies area There was a lack of food and there was a lack of pay. There were riots and even mutinies in some regiments of the Continental Army up north. Uh, There were some real nasty uprisings of soldiers that were unhappy with things like supplies and pay uh, in places like Pennsylvania. But at the same time, the British Army in the South was having an absolutely terrible time. And as a result, in the spring of 1781, Lord Cornwallis decided that the Carolinas we uh, were beyond hope for the time being, and he pulls his troops uh, northeastward to coastal Virginia. And eventually, on August 1st, he settled his troops at the town of Yorktown on the Chesapeake Bay. Interestingly, George Washington did not initially want to attack Cornwallis' forces at Yorktown. What he really wanted to do was attack General Clinton's main British army in New York City. He was obsessed with this idea for months, even though this probably would have ended in disaster due to the numbers and the strengths of British defenses up there in New York City. But he just kept harping on this, and he ended ended up butting heads with the French general in charge of French forces in the area, uh, General Rochambeau. Rochambeau thought it would be a lot smarter instead of going after General Clinton's army in New York to target Cornwallis's army in Yorktown, which he believed, and I think anyone would agree, was much more vulnerable than Clinton's army in New York. And Washington was just insistent. No, we got to go after New York City. And he indicated he, he wanted to just stage a frontal assault on uh, the British army in New York City. Rochambeau thought this was stupid, and he ended up just uh, very slickly, De facto overruling George Washington by getting Admiral de Grasse, uh, the French admiral, um, who was leading a French fleet from the Caribbean up to help the war in the mainland colonies. Rochambeau gets de Grasse to bring his French fleet to Yorktown, to the Chesapeake Bay, rather than up to New York. And this basically forced Washington's hand because even Washington realized he would need French naval support for any major attack on any British army. So he realized he had no choice but to go along and uh, participate in an attack on Yorktown. So this ends up being the supposedly great victory of George Washington, and it's not even an operation he was in favor of. He was basically uh, pushed into it by the French. In late August, uh, the French fleet reached the Chesapeake and had a few fights with some British Uh, ships in the area, but quickly established local naval superiority. Now, how were they able to do this? The British had the biggest and best fleet in the world at this time. A French able to just come in and take over the Chesapeake and dominate it. Well, the answer is that the British had actually diverted a lot of the fleet that they used to have in North America down to the Caribbean to protect some of the sugar islands in the caribbean that were being threatened by the french so again this big picture comes into play and explains you know had the french not been in on this a they wouldn't have been able to provide any fleet at all but b the british wouldn't have had to uh, divert so much of their resources to other colonies that they were worried about losing and uh, at the time the sugar islands in the caribbean actually made the british government a lot more money Than did the 13 colonies, um, even before, you know, the troubles really got rolling. Shortly after uh, the French fleet was establishing control of the Chesapeake and and of the the coast of Yorktown, Washington and um, Rochambeau show up with a combined American and French army, uh, numbering about 16,000, significantly outnumbering Cornwallis. And they begin encircling Yorktown and laying siege to it. By October 9th, they started bombarding the city and General Cornwallis sent messages to New York um, to try and get you know help from the British headquarters up there. But he never heard back. And finally, uh, October 19th, he hasn't heard back. He's surrounded by land and by sea. He's outnumbered over two to one. He's being bombarded. He decides there's nothing I can do. And so... Cornwallis surrenders his army, seven thousand troops, approximately, on October 19, 1781, and this ended the large military operations of the Revolutionary War. Um, it took the the news about a month to reach London, but it quickly launched a political debate, and by February of 1782, the House of Commons voted to cut off further funding of the war. So for practical purposes, it's over. While some smaller-scale fighting still continued in some areas, especially in some of the more remote frontier areas, um, this is the end of major military operations. The war is not officially over until the peace treaty is done in 1783, but the fighting is really mostly finished. Next time, we'll cover the actual end and aftermath a little bit of the war. Uh, We'll cover, cover the negotiations that led to the 1783 Treaty of Paris, as well as uh, the bulk of what's in the treaty itself. And perhaps more importantly, we'll look at different groups of people who were involved in this conflict in one way or another and try to figure out which of these groups we should think of as winners and which we should think of as losers as a result of the conflict. And um, some of the winners and losers will be obvious no-brainers, but others might actually surprise you if you've never closely studied the Revolutionary Era. So I hope you'll tune in next time for that. If you have any comments that are of relevance to this particular episode, please feel free to leave them in the comment section for this episode at my website. And um, you can also email me with uh, questions, comments about whatever at the email address profcj at profcj.org you can also connect with the show on facebook and twitter of course and you can subscribe to the show in places like itunes and stitcher you can also email subscribe at my website profcj.org over on the sidebar on the right hand side one of the things you'll see is a little email subscribe thing and that just if you sign up for that all you'll get is an email From the site, every time I post something new, which most of the time is a new podcast episode, occasionally might be something else. I promise I won't send you junk mail or spam or anything like that. I don't do that. There are multiple ways you can support the show if you like it, want to see it continue, want to see it grow. One, of course, is just to spread the word any way that you have available to you. Uh, to people you think might enjoy the show. You can also consider leaving a review or a rating in venues like iTunes or Stitcher that might encourage other people to give the show a listen. Of course, you can also help the show financially. If you go to the donate page on my website, which is profcj.org slash donate, uh, you can see some ways to donate there. You can donate some money to me via PayPal, either one-time donation, or you can sign up for a recurring monthly donation. You can also donate uh, Bitcoin to me. I've got a Bitcoin address on the donate page as well. Happy to accept that. You can also help the show out financially by buying items from Amazon.com by first going through any of the affiliate links to Amazon found on my website. By the way, huge thank you to everyone who's been uh, donating or buying stuff via my Amazon links recently. It's been uh, tremendous. As I mentioned last episode, I'm a bit strapped this summer because I had kind of a one-two punch. Um, I had one of my summer school courses get canceled for lack of of sufficient enrollment. And I also simultaneously had one of my kids get a somewhat expensive health issue at the same time that that we had to obviously uh, pay for. She's okay now, by the way, but, um, you know, it did, it did cost some money. There was a hospital visit, some tests and multiple doctor visits that all added up to some dough pretty quickly. So between my, um, my, my conventional day job getting cut a bit because of that canceled class and then the expenses of, uh, the un- unfortunate, uh, thing with my daughter, I'm strapped a bit right now so I can really use the help and I'm trying to put the extra time and energy, uh, from the canceled course into the podcast. Cause I really want the podcast to grow and be successful, but it would really help me out if you haven't already, if you could find it in your heart, uh, to throw a bit of dough to me one way or another. So, um, uh, again, those of you who have already sent me a few bucks or bought a few things from Amazon from my links, big big huge uh thank you from me i can i can use all the help i can get right now so as always thanks for listening to the dangerous history podcast this has been prof cj helping you learn the past so you can understand the present and prepare for the future